It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning and welcome into the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Ryan Hickey Show, as you just heard with me right here for the next two hours, exclusively, as we always are, on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Really appreciate you starting your week with us. Hopefully it was a great, enjoyable, relaxing weekend. Got outside, got some nice fresh air, enjoyed a ton of great hoops over the weekend. Because boy, do we have a lot to talk about coming off of a very fun, entertaining, interesting Sweet 16. We got some big-time um, NFL news coming out of the draft. We have a lot to get to, to here between now and 11 a.m. Eastern. So appreciate you joining. I'd love to get you involved in the show. As always, love to hear your thoughts. Whether you're listening on Facebook, you can comment right there. Uh, if you want to find the show, it's on Worldwide Sports Radio Network. That's our Facebook page. Boom, throw us a like. Find the live stream of the show right there. Comment right in the comment section. Uh, if you're watching on Periscope, appreciate you. If you want to find the show on Periscope, WWSRN underscore radio, or going on Twitter at WWSRN underscore radio, or at Ryan Hickey Show. Both those guys, or both those handles, I should say, are on Twitter. That way, boom, click on the live stream of the show right there. You can watch on your, um, on your mobile device or laptop. And we are streaming live on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric is where you can find our YouTube page. As a reminder, we're coming to you live as we always are from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, check out Big Italy Pizzeria in person in Medford, Joe's Pizzeria in Bayshore, online uh, wherever you are at BigItalyPizza.com. A lot to get into, like I said. The San Francisco 49ers make a huge move, trading up from number 12 to number 3. They will take a quarterback. We don't know who. I'll tell you who it should be. We'll get into that. Um, and do you like this move? Is this a good move by the 49ers? I'll explain my thoughts. James Harden, after a huge performance on Friday night, proclaims to the media, proclaims to the world, he believes he is the MVP of the league. Is he right? We'll get into that as well. Of course, we'll have elite eight picks towards the later end of the show. Remember, with the brand new uh, tournament schedule this year, you the 216, obviously, Saturday, Sunday, and now tonight and tomorrow night, you get the elite eight as we whittle our way down to the final four. Almost getting there as well. Two more game or two more nights of action, I should say, tonight and tomorrow to get the four teams. So speaking of which, that's where we will start this uh, this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Ryan Network with some sweet 16 thoughts. Ah, let's hear that gorgeous music. One of the best theme songs in all of sports, synonymous with just chaos. That is obviously the Marsh Madness theme on CBS. So a lot to get into here. So because we are five days away from the Elite Eight. Oh, I'm sorry. We are five days away from the Final Four. I have five thoughts from the Sweet 16. We'll get right into it. So far, Gonzaga through three games, to me, they've been tournament-proof. And what I mean by that is this. Especially, I mean, there's always chaos in, in, in the NCAA tournament, right? There's always some sort of big upset. There's always some sort of Cinderella that emerges for the most part. And this year... Unlike basically every other year, there has been more chaos, more upsets than we've ever seen. 
already a record number of upsets. And that was, that was attained just through the first four days of the tournament. Just for the first two rounds, we already had a record number of upsets that was already set for the entire tournament. So, obviously, every team, every good team, has been in trouble at one point or another. And even if they survived, they've had a scare or two. Well, it's really every team except Gonzaga. They've had no scare. They've had no letdown. And really, offensively and defensively, they've been at their peak. They've been at the, you know their elite form this entire tournament so far. And no team has been as dominant, as consistent. Because that's the thing. Not only is it dominance, because every team, or a lot of these teams now, have shown dominance one way or another that have made it to the Elite Eight. But no team has showed the consistent dominance so far that Gonzaga has through the first three games. Now, no surprise again. They're the best team in the country. So really, you know, is it going that much of a limb saying that they've been tournament-proof or they've, it's been impressive that they've been this dominant? But because we've seen other teams struggle consistently now, whether it's one game, whether it's a half, some teams have gotten a scare. Some teams, obviously, as we know, a lot of good teams haven't been uh, able to overcome that and have fallen earlier than they should have. But not Gonzaga. On offense, they're averaging, they cut this, through three games in the tournament, 92.6 points per game on offense, allowing just 63.6 points per game on defense. Their offense has been elite. Their defense has been just as good. Now, look, obviously, it helps when you have three All-Americans and Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, and Jalen Suggs on the team. Obviously, look. You're going to play really well. But the fact that they really never seem to take a bad shot, they never seem out of rhythm, they're never really in a bad place offensively or defensively, I'm impressed. I very uh, much am impressed. Again, I had them in my championship. A lot of people either had them in their championship, in their Final Four, or as their champion. So, again, it's really not going on a limb. It's not really this big, bold thought here that look at, look at what I'm seeing and no one else is seeing. But I have been impressed that so far through three games, there has not even been a sniff of a scare for Gonzaga for the most part. Because as we've seen, every good team has had that scare, that thought in the back of the head, like, uh-oh, we'd be able to get out of this game, get out of this half, but not Gonzaga. So very, very impressive so far. That's my first thought. Number two, it's funny, because when you watch the NBA compared to college basketball, there's a lot of differences. But what's funny now is that the NBA especially, if you don't have the three-point shot, you really don't have a chance in a lot of these games. But college basketball, especially in this tournament so far, it has been the total antithesis of that. So Roger Sherman, who works at the Ringer, did a, a great job digging this up. So through the Sweet 16, five out of the eight winners that advanced over the weekend shot, I mean, to put it nicely, horribly from three. These are the winners that survived from Saturday and Sunday so far. So Oregon State, they shot five from 13 from deep. Well, you actually, when you look at the rest of these teams, that's actually pretty damn good. We say hey, they only made five threes. You don't, you don't really think, all right, this is a team that's going to advance. So Oregon State made five out of 13 threes um, in their win over Loyola Chicago. Baylor, number one seed, nice win uh, for them over Villanova. They shot just three of 19 from deep. One of the best three-point sh uh, three shooting teams in the country in a win, in a double-digit win, shoots just three of 19 from deep. Arkansas. One of nine as they barely survive Oral Roberts. One three that they made. They're another high-flying offense. Struggle from deep, to say the least. Houston, against that two-three zone of Syracuse, seven of 26. So, again, some more struggles here, but at least they made, out of the teams that advanced, the most threes out of these teams I'm, uh, I'm highlighting. And Michigan, just three of 11 as they handle Florida State. And handle Florida State pretty well. So, think about that. 
5 of 13 from Oregon State, 3 of 19 from Baylor, 1 of 9 from Arkansas, 7 of 26 from Houston, 3 of 11 from Michigan. All five of these teams advance. Advance. Just funny how if you have these numbers in the NBA, those teams are getting blown up by 30. If you have these numbers in college basketball, they're moving on. They're winning these games. That was a funny um, funny trend that sets. A nice job by Roger Sherman there to pick that up and put that on Twitter. Uh, so that's just three ball, not as imperative as you think in college hoops compared to what it is in the NBA. How about UCLA's resolve? This is my number three thought here. I want to give them a lot of credit because yesterday, I mean, they played – one of the best games of the tournament, by far the best game of the Sweet 16, as they defeat Alabama in overtime. But the resolve that they showed yesterday is something you rarely, rarely see in college basketball. I, I want to commend them for it. Like I said, if you remember, UCLA up by three, just four seconds left. Alabama inbounding, need a prayer, three-pointer, just send the game to overtime. Odds are very slim that happens. So if you're UCLA, you're feeling good. Wow, we're about to go to the lead eight. This is unbelievable. As an 11 seed, the dance continues. This magical run continues. And Alabama hits that back-breaking near half-court three at the buzzer to send overtime. How many times, by the way, when you're watching one shining moment after the national title game's over, do we watch a lot of those buzzer beaters, a lot of those improbable shots to tie the game and send it overtime? How many times does that, does that team end up winning? In part because the momentum swing is so drastic, it's so steep from, wow, you're UCLA. Barring a miracle, we're going to the lead eight. This is awesome, guys. Four seconds left. Don't foul. Nothing dumb, and we're going to move on. Alabama says, not so fast. Boom, hit that three. So many times, that momentum boost from right there would usually propel a team like Alabama, push through the, the better team, by the way, push them through overtime to where you say, like, you're so dejected. Not only are you dejected, you're also missing your best scorer in Johnny Juzan. So you have a lot going against you now, heading to overtime. You all of a sudden have to basically get over that shot, play better, and they Dominated over time. Dominated. And I would have thought at least coming off of that shot, you tell me one team dominates in overtime, I'll say, all right, Alabama, it's over. You can't really overcome that big of a momentum swing if you're UCLA. Alabama's a better team. Your top score in UCLA is out for overtime because he fouled out. And the, like that kind of just momentum swing, usually especially in college sports when there's so much emotion, especially from 18 to 22-year-old kids, it's tough to ask them to overcome that. And I want to give UCLA a lot of credit because they did. They're able to come overcome that. Very impressive by the Bruins. And they showed the poise, the moxie of a very veteran team. Again, something we don't really see a lot in college basketball. So hat tip to you to Mick Cronin. Keep the guys still engaged, entertained. And credit to UCLA for, uh, for putting that behind him, moving on, and advancing to Elite Eight. Speaking of UCLA, let's just kind of take a step back and look at the entire Pac-12. Because what they've been doing is so... So impressive. It's so much fun to watch as the Pac-12 Conference, the Conference of Champions, putting that name to the test because they have just been taking care of business left and right. Again, UCLA, great result we just talked about for them, taking down Alabama. They advanced to the Elite Eight as an 11 seed, going from the play-in game now to the Elite Eight, one win away from joining VCU as the only two teams to go from the first four to the final four. Oregon State continues to impress because they're a team that, we didn't, you know, obviously they were picked by the media to finish last in the Pac-12. Needed to win the Pac-12 tournament just to make the NCAA tournament. And this is a team that you think, playing with house money, okay, like, you know, they're one of those teams that built on momentum. If they get out to a hot start, they can kind of ride that wave. But once teams maybe make a run, maybe once teams step up and try to, you know, start to push Oregon State, they'll fold. 
but they've been at their best in the big moments. Loyola Chicago, and when they played them over the weekend on Saturday, and they couldn't hit water off a boat. They were having, you know, they were um, taking um, shot clock violations. They weren't getting shots off. They were having ugly, ugly The first 10 minutes of the game, I mean, you're wondering if Oregon State is going to get to 20 points for the entire game. The Loyola Chicago's defense was all over the Beavers, and they just like look like one of those things where, you know what, they're out of whack, they're out of sync. Nice run by Oregon State, but this is a team, especially with a legit defense in Loyola Chicago, they've taken down big teams before. They just did it with, with Illinois. This is where the run ends for the Beavers. But instead, no. They took control towards the end of the first half, took control of the game, um, heading to halftime, and from there, just took off in the second half. Anytime Loyola Chicago tried to get back in the game, boom, the Beavers had an answer. Just like back in the round of 32, when they played Oklahoma State and Kate Cunningham, you had Cunningham make a, a few big plays. I know, remember, one big steal, big three. About four minutes left to make a real charge for the Cowboys. The momentum in the building is starting to swing. You feel the energy start to go to Oklahoma State. And after that under four timeout, Oregon State comes out, finishes the job, closes out the game. So they play their best really in the big moment. It's impressive when they take a big punch from someone, they deliver an even bigger punch. Congrats to you, Oregon State. We'll see if they can keep it going here and make a run to the Final Four. And finally, I mean, USC, outside of maybe Gonzaga, they've been the second most dominant team in this tournament. They've blown out Drake, they've blown out Kansas, and now they've blown out Oregon. Again, we just raved and talked about how Gonzaga has been really the only team that's been tournament-proof for the most part, where their offense has been clicking, their defense has been playing well, and they really haven't had a scare. I mean, USC is probably the number two team in terms of dominance, in terms of being tournament-proof, if you will, of avoiding the upset and even kind of getting to a position where they could be upset. They're playing their best basketball right now. Andy Enfield is coaching these guys tremendously, if that name sounds familiar. Former Florida Gulf Coast coach uh, was at Dunk City. Back in 2013 when they uh, were a 15 seed and made it to the Sweet 16. They've been playing some great, great basketball. I'm telling you, USC Gonzaga is going to be a hell of a matchup tomorrow. Maybe the most fun matchup and exciting matchup we will have of the Elite Eight. I'm very excited to watch that one. And you look at the Pac-12 Conference as a whole. You know what their record is? They had five teams in the tournament. If you include, because I'm including it, the playing game that UCLA played against Michigan State. The conference as a whole is 12-2. and two. So look at the Big Ten. Eight out of the nine teams out in the first weekend of playing. Here comes the Pac-12. 12-2 so far through the first three rounds of the tournament. A lot of fun. They continue and potentially could get three teams in the Final Four. USC, UCLA, Oregon State. Also live, also playing in the tonight or tomorrow. And finally, final thought here of the Sweet 16. I'll give Michigan a lot of credit. Because their resilience has been equally as impressive to when we talked about UCLA with their resolve. They lost Isaiah Livers in the Big Ten tournament. Best player on Michigan for sure. And I just personally, I thought when you lose a player of that caliber, what he means to this Michigan team so late in the year. Not where you have two weeks left in the regular season where, sure, it's late. Maybe it's February. But you have time at least to mold a game plan, figure out some roles for your players and your team. So that way, at least by the time the NCAA tournament comes, there's not guessing of, well, who's going to step up? Who's going to play this role? Can this guy come in and play well? I mean, Michigan, no, none, no time for that. Lost livers. They lose to Ohio State. So now you basically had only one game to figure out, well, who's going who's gonna to sub in? How are we going to get the production that livers produced when he's out on the floor? And Michigan, I thought, was going to uh, lose against LSU in the round of 32 just because when you don't have that ability kind of – when you don't have the ability of time to figure out how to replace your best player that late in the year – 
I just don't think a, a team like that could overcome it, even when they're the number one seed, even when they've had such a, a successful and great regular season. Michigan, I give them a lot of credit because they are playing great basketball. They look like they don't miss livers at all. Just a testament to all the other role guys around them that have stepped up and played really well. So I thought LSU would give them problems. Uh, Michigan took the punch and moved on. I thought for sure Florida State would lock them up with their length, with their size, with their just in-your-face defense. That'd be enough to slow Michigan down, and that's where the game where you really would feel the loss of livers. But Michigan said, hey, no problem. Not only did they beat Florida State, they handled the Seminoles. So they figured out very, very, very quickly, credit to them, credit to Juwan Howard, an uh, incredibly talented coach. He has his team playing well. And right now, they are cruising to the Elite Eight. So those are my thoughts. I'm curious your thoughts. What was your biggest takeaway from the Sweet 16? Who you got moving on to the Final Four? We'll do Elite Eight picks in about an hour or so from now. You have two games tonight, two games tomorrow. Should be so much fun as we work our way down towards finding out the four Final Four teams that will be playing next weekend. So again, give you my picks in about an hour um, or so. When we come on back, Big move on Friday afternoon. Really, two big moves. But the, the big one, the main one, is that the San Francisco 49ers trade up from number 12 to number 3 in the draft. Presumably, they're going to take a quarterback. This is a smart move for the 49ers. Basically, put all their eggs in the basket of drafting a young quarterback and hoping that that quarterback um, turns out successful. I'll tell you what the answer to me is yes when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on this gorgeous, gorgeous Monday morning reacting to the NCAA Tournament. I gave you my five thoughts as we are five days away from the Final Four. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Nice and easy, two Twitter handles to find the show. Comment on Periscope. You can comment on Facebook if you're watching right there in the live stream. We'll circle back in an hour from now, I'll give you my Elite Eight picks. And if you know anything about my picks from football season, from my bracket, Take them and fade them. Do the complete opposite, and you will be in great position to succeed. If you still have a bracket, or maybe you know, you're doing a brand-new bracket where you can kind of start from the Sweet 16 or Elite 8 and move on from there, take my picks, go the complete opposite of them, and I almost guarantee you will win the bracket, the pool. If you put a little money on it gambling-wise, whatever you want to do, you will win because that's how my picks have gone, but we'll try anyway. We'll try to pick some winners here. Don't accidentally, or I don't try to pick the losers. Maybe I should start saying that. Yeah, this is who I think is going to win. And then, you know, come back out the other day. See, I told you they would lose. Maybe we'll try that. Maybe that will be uh, a little, you know, better to uh, get the picks on the, on the right train here. But we'll do that in an hour for, or so for now. I'll circle back to the tournament talk as well. I do want to talk and transition and do some NFL here. Because we had a massive move, a surprising move, happen on Friday afternoon. And that was the San Francisco 49ers. All season long, all I should say all off-season long, reassuring the media that Jimmy G is their guy. They like Jimmy G. He's going to be the quarterback moving forward. John Lynch said it. Kyle Shanahan said it. 
And now we know they, that was a smokescreen. Now we know we truly, or now we know the true thoughts, I should say, of that organization, how they feel about Jimmy G. Because they made the move. They traded up for number 12 in the draft. Now they traded the Dolphins to move all the way up to number three. You don't make a big move like this and giving up two first-round picks in the future if you're not taking a quarterback. So this has QB written all over it. The future now of Jimmy G's in question. Adam Schefter reporting that he talked to a 49er source saying Jimmy G's going nowhere for 2021. We'll see if that comes to fruition. Maybe that will depend on who they want to draft. Maybe it's a project. Maybe they'll, they'll do the Kansas City Chiefs route where they had Alex Smith. They trade up to draft Patrick Mahomes. They sat Patrick Mahomes for the first year. And then after the playoffs were over, Alex Smith was traded to Washington. And as we know, it became Patrick Mahomes' team. So see what route they go down. We'll, we'll do that actually in 20 minutes or 15 minutes from now. I'll tell you who the 49ers should draft. But before that, just on the surface, you, no, matter, no matter who they draft, I love this move. Thursday show, we talked about how if I was the Jets, if I was Joe Douglas, I don't draft a quarterback. I don't draft Zach Wilson. I instead either trade down or draft a lineman because there are so many holes on this roster for the Jets to fulfill that I don't think drafting a quarterback, a young rookie quarterback, and kind of putting him in this hole, in this hell hole, if you will, with no help around him, I don't think that's the wisest move personally. But I feel the complete opposite of this with the San Francisco 49ers trading up to get a quarterback at number three. Because to me, they offer whatever young quarterback they take, every opportunity to have success. And I think that will happen. So before we get into why, I just want to lay out, so when you draft a quarterback in the first round, in the top 10, in the top five, in the top three, like the 49ers are going to be doing this year, there's really, for the most part, four types of quarterback that you're going to get. Here's what I mean by that. So you can either get a quarterback who excels in any circumstance you throw him into, Guys like Andrew Luck goes from the Colts, a 2-14 team, comes in, boom, first year as a rookie, 11-5, the Colts make the playoffs. That team was awful. The offensive line sunk, the receivers weren't really great, the defense wasn't good. But Andrew Luck, because he was a generational-type quarterback, was able to go into any situation possible and turn that team around, he did it with the Colts. Deshaun Watson, almost the same thing. I mean, things in Houston started off better, but especially now, you look just this past year where you had his best receiver in DeAndre Hopkins traded away leading into the 2020 season. You had Bill O'Brien fired four games in after winning a power struggle to become not only the head coach, but also the general manager. Made some questionable moves. He's fired a month into the season. There's a ton of turmoil. As the owner doesn't really know what he's doing, he's getting, you know, this guy Jack Easterby's in his ear, kind of taking control low-key behind the scenes. He's making the decisions. There's all this power struggle going on to who's going to take the GM role. There's a power vacuum here. Who's going to take it over? There's just almost a, a lot of Game of Thrones-like action going on in the, in the Texans organization. When you factor that, when you factor the head coach being fired a month of the season, when you factor in the fact that the number one wide receiver, one of the best wide receivers in all the NFL, is traded away before the season starts, Deshaun Watson still leads the league in passing yards, throws for a career-high 33 touchdowns, throws for a career-low seven interceptions. That's a guy, Deshaun Watson, you can plug into any situation and he will have success. So that's, number, that's, that's one of the types of quarterback you'll get. No matter what, this guy's a stud. He will succeed no matter what the circumstances are around him. Then you have quarterbacks who will be better than we expected, better than thought because of the situation around them. Here's what I mean by that. Guys like Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson. None of those three guys, Herbert, Mahomes, Jackson, I think we, we figured would come in would be MVPs of the league, would be some of the best quarterbacks to play, would be rookie of the year like Justin Herbert was. 
But part of the reason why they exploded onto the scene, played so well, is that they had great talent around them to where that elevated their play. Even though Justin Herbert went sixth overall to the Chargers last year, they still had Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Hunter Henry, Austin Eckler, serviceable, we'll call it, offensive line. That's a guy who we had questions about. No one kind of really knew, is he really going to be this good? There's some questions. Should the Dolphins take two or, or Herbert? I was on the board of two. I thought Justin Herbert, as the third quarterback taken in the draft, was correct. But as we know, because of the circumstances and the situation he went to, he was able to outshine Tua, outshine Burrow to become Rookie of the Year and be the best quarterback, at least last year, of those rookie quarterbacks taken. Patrick Holmes, same thing. And let's not act like we knew this was coming. A guy taking over the league, exploding onto the scene, becoming the best quarterback in the NFL in the span of two years. 50 touchdowns the first year he was a starter um, in his second full season, but really as his rookie year in terms of, of being a full-time starter with the Chiefs. No one really knew what to expect. He was a project, but because you had Andy Reid in Kansas City, because you had um, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, a great offensive line, you had a ton of great pieces around you where Patrick Holmes was able to come in and maximize his talent because the talent around him was great. Same thing with Lamar Jackson. I was a doubter of Lamar. I know people were higher on them uh, on him than I was, but I just question the fit because for the most part, we really haven't seen a quarterback of his style teams go all in on and cater to it instead of basically having Lamar Jackson become a, an NFL prototype quarterback, we'll say. The Ravens said, screw that. We're going to mold our team to fit Lamar's strengths. He had a great offensive line, a tremendous running game, a smart offensive coordinator in Greg Roman, a, a very um, wise coach in John Harbaugh saying, hey, the direction we need to go in is by basically going run first. I know the trend of the NFL, pass, pass, pass. We're going to go run, run, run. And that worked and turned into Lamar Jackson being the MVP of the league. And the Ravens got the number one seed in the playoffs in 2019. As we know, it didn't go great in the playoffs. But the point is, no one saw Lamar Jackson becoming the MVP of the league. No one saw Patrick Holmes becoming the best quarterback in the NFL. And no one saw Justin Herbert being the best quarterback of the rookie class when they were drafted. But they shocked and they um, performed better than expected because of the, of the talent around them. So they had the talent there, but they were elevated because the team they went to was already good. Those are the two types of quarterbacks you'll get so far. You'll get another quarterback who will underperform because of the circumstances there. Guys like me, Sam Darnold. Ryan Tannehill, where you look, they have talent. They could show you what you got. The only issue is the team that they draft that, that drafts them, unfortunately, doesn't have the talent, doesn't have the infrastructure, doesn't have the coaching to bring the best out of them. I mean, if you listen to this show, you know, I am very high on Sam Darnold personally. I think this is a guy who, if he is given a true shot, if, if he's given a legitimate offense to play in, not with Adam Gase, not handing the ball off to Frank Gore, or playing with an offensive line that's patched together. But if he is truly put on a good team, now you see some rumors that maybe he'll go and get traded to the Broncos. I think he'd have a lot of success in Denver because they already have at least some semblance of a competent offense. I think that's what he needs, competent coach and competent offense. So I think Sam Darnold, to me, was taken down and struggled in the three years here in New York in part because the Jets gave him nothing. And those circumstances, the Jets themselves took Sam Darnold down. Same with Ryan Tannehill. I mean, look at Tannehill. a great example because struggled with Miami. Got that big contract, didn't live up to it, traded for a, a marginal pick to Tennessee to back up Marcus Mariota. That's something he was brought in as a backup in Tennessee. As we know, Mariota ineffective. Tannehill com comes in, leads him to the playoffs in 2018, leads him to the playoffs in 2020. He has turned his career around because now he has Derrick Henry to throw the ball to, or hand the ball off to, a solid offensive line, good play action, and good receivers to throw the ball to. A nice offensive coordinator, Arthur Smith, when he was there. So to me, at least, there's an opportunity where quarterbacks have talent, 
but because the situation around them is so toxic, they get dragged down. So you have quarterbacks who excel no matter the circumstances, quarterbacks who exceed expectations because they're put in a, a good position to succeed, quarterbacks who disappoint, if you will, because the, the situation around them is so toxic that they can't themselves overcome all the bad and, and putridness of the front office and the GM and the head coach and, and the pieces around them. And finally, you have quarterbacks who just flat-out bust. Jamarcus Russell, very, you know, very famous busted quarterback, but even guys like Mitchell Trubisky, with Chicago, Dwayne Haskins with the Washington football team, Josh Rosen with every team he's been on so far, just unable to figure out, unable to really live up to the hype and just not good. Even though the circumstances, they gave, they had a chance to succeed. They had a chance. So those four types of quarterback, for the most part, when you're drafting this high as the, as the 49ers are the top three pick, for the most part, those are the four types of quarterbacks you can get when you draft a quarterback that high. But with the 49ers now specifically, if I look at what could happen, what are the possible outcomes for whichever quarterback they end up drafting number three, this is the three likely outcomes I think could happen. I think they could draft a guy that no matter the circumstance, he will have success. That's sort of a, a Deshaun Watson-like player. I think you can draft a guy like Justin Herbert or Patrick Holmes to where the, the quarterback you draft will have more success than anticipated because of the great offensive scheme, personnel, philosophy that the 49ers have. We'll get to that in a second here. Or I think the third option is the player flat-out busts. Everything is there for They have an opportunity to, uh, to succeed. They just aren't NFL quarterbacks for whatever reason. So to me, those are the three options that are there for the 49ers for whatever quarterback they draft. Two and three of those are positive. Two out of the three of those put the quarterback in a position to succeed and put the quarterback in a position to have success. And what has history shown? when drafting young quarterbacks so far? Because it's an inexact science, right? It's a crapshoot. It's almost, well, at least on the surface, it feels like a perception that it's almost a blind draw. Close your eyes. Let's see. Who, who, who's the lottery ticket we're going to have here? Oh, Patrick Holmes? All right, we'll see what happens. Who's the lottery ticket we have here? Oh, uh, Sam Darnold? All right, we'll see what happens. And it's almost a crapshoot of who succeeds and who doesn't. There is an inexact science there, though, that shows when you put young quarterbacks, when you surround them with talent, with a competent scheme, they will have success, and that is what the 49ers have. That's why I love this move so much, because what do they have? They have a, a few pieces that really no other team that's picking the top three can talk about. They have legitimate offensive talent. They have a top two tight end in George Kittle. You have solid wide receivers in Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk. You have a top 10 offensive line that's only going to get better with a potential Hall of Fame left tackle in Trent Williams there for the next six years. You have, when healthy when healthy, in an elite run game that really is only second to the Ravens because all they want to do is run, run, run. So you have all that working for an offense. You have already intact a Super Bowl caliber roster on defense. You have Nick Bosa. You have Fred Warner. You have Dre Greenlaw. And despite all those injuries that the 49ers suffered last year, because it was, I mean, you talk about 6-10, and 10, what was the main reason for it? Injuries. All those injuries, offensively, defensively, remember, they lost, Nick, uh, they lost Nick Bosa early on. They lost Solomon Thomas early on. Despite all those injuries, they still on defense were top five in total yards allowed, top five in passing yards allowed. So just think with those guys healthy now, what the defense could be. This is still a 2019 Super Bowl team. They can get back to that, and they are still at that level as long as they're healthy. So you have legitimate offensive talent, a Super Bowl caliber roster, and you have a genius, offensive-minded head coach. To me, I love Kyle Shannon. I love the way he schemes plays. I love the way he designs plays. To me, 
if we're, if we're talking about coaches who haven't won a Super Bowl in the NFL, to me right now, Kyle Shannon currently is the best coach in the NFL to not have won a Super Bowl. I think he's better than McVay. I think he's better than Brian Flores. I think he's better than Matt LaFleur. Whatever head coach you, you want to put in that argument of current head coaches that haven't won a Super Bowl, I, to me, think Kyle Shannon is the greatest non-winning, uh, non-Super Bowl winning head coach right now in the game. He is so creative on offense, puts his players in positions to succeed in the run game, in the pass game. I think whatever young quarterback he drafts and puts there at number three and puts in the offense, it's going to be a situation that really no other top three quarterback in the NFL has seen before. Think about that. You rarely get a team so talented as the 49ers, ready to win the Super Bowl, drafting in the top three. So, yeah. You know what I look to, or you know what the comp I'm going to make here that I think this quarterback could be? I think this quarterback could be very Justin Herbert-like. Most likely, third quarterback off the board, if you assume that, well, at this point, you know, you can basically guarantee Trevor Lawrence is going to the Jaguars. I think it's pretty safe to assume Zach Wilson's going to the Jets. So whatever quarterback off the board that they take, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, Trey Lance, I think they'll have success. And I think they could be Justin Herbert-like because, again, we just talked about before, Justin Herbert went to a situation where, despite being the third quarterback off the board, he went to a situation that had a ton of offensive talent already. He stepped in there and just played ball. He didn't have to put the team on his shoulders. He didn't have to play above his weight because the run game stinks or the offensive line can't block for him or the receivers can't catch. You have to do all this extra stuff to just put players in position to succeed. This is drop back here. Here's your safety valve, George Kittle, one of the best tight ends to ever play the game. Or... One of the best tight ends in the game currently. My apologies. Hindenburg, one of the best tight ends in the game currently. You have an elite run game to where you're going to be throwing the ball 25, 30 times anyway. You're not going to be throwing the ball 60 times like Joe Burrow did in Cincinnati. You have a, a tremendously talented offensive head coach to where he is going to realize what you're good at and scheme that, the offense to help and cater to your strengths, which only makes playing the quarterback position that much easier. So despite, yes, being, being you know, Drafting uh, a first-round quarterback for the most part honestly hasn't worked. Think about this. I saw the stat um, from Pete Futek, which is an awesome stat and just kind of shows you the volatility and the toughness it is to draft a quarterback in the first round. Since 2008, only two quarterbacks drafted in the first round of the draft won Super Bowls. Patrick Holmes, right with the Chiefs. The other, Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco. So it's an almost inexact science. It's, it is so tough to now to land these quarterbacks in the first round. But I love it from San Francisco because they have everything there to almost come as close to, as you can to ensuring success for whatever quarterback they pick. And honestly, I feel confident. I'll, I'll tell you my ranking here in a second of who I would go with, one, two, three, in terms of if I was Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch. But honestly, they could say any name. Zach Wilson. Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones with that number three overall pick, I think they'll have success. I really do. And it's a credit to Kyle Shanahan. It's a credit to the 49ers infrastructure and their organization for building a sustainable winner that is a quarterback away, a healthy quarterback away from winning a Super Bowl. So whatever guy goes there at number three is going to have every reason to succeed. And I love that. I love it. Because even though it's an inexact science as we talked about, you are setting yourself up for the best chance for this quarterback to succeed. That's why, to me, it's worth giving up two first-round picks in the future to go from 12 to 3, to me, is a genius, genius move by the 49ers to do so. And I, I love it. I absolutely love it. 
So speaking of which, let me ask you this question. Now that the 49ers are at number three, we know he's going one, Justin, uh, Trevor Lawrence, excuse me. We have a pretty good idea. I think it's safe to assume at this point, Zach Wilson is going to go number two. So who should the 49ers draft in number three? Which quarterback should they take that will have or, or, or produce the best results for San Francisco going forward that could lead them to a Super Bowl? I'll tell you my answer next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here. On the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, taking you to 11 a.m. Eastern. So the 49ers on Friday afternoon make a huge jump in the draft. They're at number 12, make a trade with the Dolphins, move up to number three in the NFL draft. They're going to take a quarterback. I think that's as close to a guarantee as you can really say here. They traded two future first-round picks to make this move uh, nine spots. They're going to make a quarterback. Uh, they're going to draft a quarterback. So who should it be? Well, I think it's safe to say we can make a few assumptions here. You know what happens when you assume. But we're going to try to do so anyway, and hopefully we don't make an ass out of you and me. I think it's all but a guarantee. And even if you read Peter King's uh, Football Morning in America column that he dropped late last night or early this morning, he interviewed um, Urban Meyer. Basically, without saying I'm taking Trevor Lawrence, he said everything you possibly could say to indicate the Jaguars are taking Trevor Lawrence at number one. Okay, so Trevor Lawrence off the board for the 49ers at number one. I think it's safe to say at this point, safe to assume at this point, the Jets are taking a quarterback at number two. Against my better judgment, I don't think they should. I think they will, and I think it's going to be Zach Wilson. Okay, so Trevor Lawrence at one, Zach Wilson at two. So you're the 49ers now at three. You have really three options. You have Justin Fields from Ohio State. You have Mac Jones from Alabama. You have Trey Lance from North Dakota State. What do you do? Who do you take? To me, how I'd rank it, what the 49ers should be doing, I would take Justin Fields, then I would take Mac Jones, and then Trey Lance. So that's my top three order. If everything is there for me, I'm taking Justin Fields without a doubt with that number three overall pick. I think the other second option there, if you don't like Fields, would be Mac Jones. I think the last option potentially that could go to forty uh, to San Francisco would be Trey Lance. So we'll break down all three. I'll start with, with Justin Fields here. For me, Fields is not only all the tools – to become a very successful NFL quarterback. He has proven it on the field. To me, at least, that's what makes it such an easy pick for the 49ers. He has proven it both on the field and has this, this, the skill set and the tools that you could see in pro days and on film that, to me, make this number three overall pick a slam dunk. A slam dunk. And you, you make this move also because you have an idea of what the Jaguars are doing and what the Jets are doing. So you have an idea of who's going to be there. They still trade up all this way. I think, to me, it should be for Justin Fields. Because let's look at it from a production perspective. Well, the production speaks for itself. Two-year starter at Ohio State. In those two years combined, he has 78 total touchdowns, just nine interceptions. Almost an 8-to-1 touchdown-interception ratio. Puts up a ton of points, has pretty good ball security. He played well for two years. He's not a one-hit wonder Really, like Zach Wilson is at BYU. Like I know Zach Wilson was a three-year starter. He's a one-hit wonder. Played really, really well in 2020. Really struggled in 2019. Really struggled in 2018. 
But Justin Fields consistently has played really good at a high level in the Big Ten, in a power conference, in a legitimate conference, for two years now. If you have doubts, if you have questions, if you're not sold on Justin Fields from his on-field production, I'll, I'll, I'll point to this. I want to point to two games really quickly. I want to point you to the 2020 college football playoff game against Clemson, which they lost. I want to point you to the 2021 college football um, uh, playoff game against Clemson, which they won. To me, that says all about the, the moxie, the determination, the chutzpah, if you will, of Justin Fields. That 2020 college football playoff semifinal game is Clemson, not this season, but last season, did not go well. Really struggled early on. Ohio State, I mean, played well from the 20-yard line to the 20-yard line, couldn't punch in the end zone, settled for a lot of field goals. That came back to bite them late. Clemson takes a late lead. If you remember, Ohio State driving down the field, chance to win the game. Justin Fields, because Chris Olave takes a wrong turn, that they have miscommunication. He throws right. Olave breaks left. Interception in the end zone. Game over. A Clemson advances to the national title game. Ohio State goes home. All offseason long, from the 2019 season to the 2020 season, was focused on one thing. Getting back to that moment and avenging their loss to Clemson. That was it. And what happened? Obviously, as we know, the Big Ten had the wacky schedule, pandemic, and everything else. But Ohio State got back to that game. They made it back to the playoff, and they got that matchup against Clemson that they wanted for a year. And what happened? Justin Fields had a career day against that same defense and make him look silly just a year ago. 22 of 28. 385 yards, six, six touchdowns. He was out of his mind. He played the best game of his career against a defense that made him look silly a year ago. And he played the best game of his career against a team he wanted to play. That was it. That was the game for Ohio State season. I understand they played Alabama and lost in the national title game uh, a few weeks later. That was the game for Ohio State season. That is why they made all this effort to come back in 2020, had the Big Ten play season. They wanted another crack at Clemson, and they did it. And, oh, by the way, 385 yards, six touchdowns against one of the best defensive coordinators in all of college football, uh, Brent Venables there at Clemson. Not only all that, he also did so with hurt ribs in the first half. Remember, he took that huge hit from James Skalski. Wasn't really, you know, you see him every throw, he's wincing in pain. And he's still throwing 50-yard dimes down the field. Still embarrassing Clemson's defense. To me, that tells you all you need to know about Justin Fields. His ability to bounce back, his competitiveness, his determination, his ability to play hurt, his ability to lift his team and play well in the biggest moments. There's no question about that. To me, you have questions about the other quarterbacks here, but now with Justin Fields. To me, that performance sells itself as to why he should be the number three overall pick for the 49ers. But on top of that, on top of just that tremendous performance and, and on top of just playing really well at Ohio State for two years, he's a tremendous leader. Again, part of the reason the Big Ten came back, whether you want to admit this or not, Justin Fields is a big reason why the Big Ten decided to change course, go from not playing in the fall to playing in the fall. Excuse me. He had that open letter, let us play. He was a, a, a big factor. Trevor Lawrence did so for college football. But when the Big Ten decided... After opening training camp, we're not going to play this fall too dangerous. He was a big voice and a big reason that led the charge for the Big Ten to eventually return, and it did. Tremendous, tremendous leader. And also, too, let's look at this other factor here. He presents a skill set. He presents an athleticism at the quarterback position that Kyle Shanahan has never had before. Look at the quarterbacks he's had success with, Kyle Shanahan did in the NFL. 
He was Washington's offensive coordinator when Kirk Cousins was there. When he played two good seasons, led him to the um, playoffs. And as we know, that led him to a big payday in Minnesota. Was in Atlanta with Matt Ryan when Matt Ryan won the MVP and Atlanta made it to the Super Bowl in 2016. We don't have to go how the Super Bowl ended. I'm sure Falcons fans are already well aware of that. But he was the offensive coordinator. He was the driving force for Matt Ryan's MVP season. Coincidence or not, he leaves to go to San Francisco after that year. Matt Ryan's not really come close to that MVP season. And Jimmy Garoppolo. Kirk Cousins, Matt Ryan, Jimmy G are the, are the three quarterbacks that really Kyle Shannon had, had, has had the most success with in the NFL. All three of those guys, not really mobile. Pocket quarterbacks. Uh, Cousins can run a little bit, but he's not exactly a playmaker you worry about you know, using his legs. He's not really a guy that will scramble to pick up a first down on third down if no one's open. A lot of those guys, for the most part, are three statues in the pocket. Well, Justin Fields, with his legs, with his athletic ability, provides a mobility that Kyle Shannon has never had before. And as we know, that makes your offense that much more dynamic. When there's another element to worry about if you're a defense. When you have to worry about Justin Fields beating with his legs. When you have to worry about, yeah, if we can get pressure in the pocket, well, we got to make sure someone's on the outside of the pocket to keep him in there, contain him, to not allow the play to continue. It just makes that already potent San Francisco offense that much more dangerous. And that's why, to me, Justin Fields is a slam dunk. Slam dunk. Quarterback at number three, the 49ers should be drafted. Great athleticism that Kyle Shannon's never had before. Tremendous leader. And his production speaks for herself at Ohio State in the Big Ten Conference for two years. Not just one year, two years. That's why, to me at least, Justin Fields, hands down, the quarterback the 49ers should be taking. So if it's not Justin Fields, they decide to go elsewhere. I think it, it should be and will be Mac Jones. Here's why. Mac Jones, football IQ-wise, ability to read defense-wise, is the exact quarterback Kyle Shanahan craves. Craves. Mac Jones' biggest strength, you could say, is his IQ, is his brain. All right, what are we talking about? Kyle Shanahan's goal with the 49ers offense is to make it easy for the quarterback. It's very similar to Sean McVay, where he will spell it out for you before the play. He'll put guys in motion. He'll have the ability to kind of have the defense show what they're going to do before the snap. So that way you kind of know as a quarterback, all right, they're blitzing here. I'm going to go here. Or they're going to, you know, drop eight. I'm going to find the guy underneath. Their zone, man. They, the Shanahan offense, similar to the McVay offense, gives you clues before the snap as to what the defense is going to be. It makes it hard for them to disguise what they're actually going to be in um, before the ball snapped. So now... You give Mac Jones, a guy who's tremendously smart, who knows where to go with the ball, basically some clues to the answer for the test before each snap. He's going to be, I think, a great fit in this 49ers offense. Because that's really all Shanahan needs. He just needs a quarterback. And we've seen, because of the lack of mobility, he's had success, despite the way the game is kind of turning, away from that statue quarterback and more to a mobile quarterback who can make plays with his athleticism. The reason why the 49ers still have a lot of success in offense is because basically... The quarterbacks that Shannon has there are very smart at pre-snap reads. And that, to me, is what Mac Jones is. He can make the right read. He knows what the defense is running. He can, he can decipher the coverages they're in. And that way, even before the ball snapped, he knows where he's going, who has the mismatch, and what kind of areas to look out for. So that's a huge strength of Mac Jones. Part of the reason why Alabama was so potent on offense. I understand they had Najee Harris. Devontae Smith, all of these great receivers, running backs, and a great offensive line. I understand all of that. And also, I understand they had a, a tremendously talented and creative offensive coordinator in Steve Sarkeesian, 
who, especially this year, you saw his creativeness led to Devontae Smith being open, what, every time? Because that's the thing, too. Devontae Smith, Heisman winner, he was obviously the best player in Alabama. Offensively, especially when Jalen Waddle went down, he was the biggest threat for every defense. He was the guy every defense circled. We got to slow him down. But as you know, they weren't able to slow him down. Why? In part because of the creativeness that Steve Sarkeesian had in skimming up plays and, and routes that always put the defense in a bind and always seemed to lead Devontae Smith to being open. Well, part of that, Devontae Smith always being open, was Mac Jones making the right read to put the ball in the right spot so boom, as soon as Devontae Smith made his break or, or maybe beat his defender, the ball's out right there where it should be and allowed Devontae Smith to get in space quicker. So Mac Jones, tremendous at reading defenses, tremendous to, to putting the ball where it should be, knowing where the ball is going. That is a stable of the Shannon offense, and that's to me why, if it isn't Justin Fields, I think it will be Mac Jones because he is so smart. And really, IQ-wise, is the total epitome of what Kyle Shannon wants in an offense from his quarterback. So if it's not Justin Fields, if it's not Mac Jones, Obviously, that's why I have Trey Lance here as the third uh, and final option. And I think, to me, this is the biggest risk here. I think this is a huge risk for the 49ers to put uh, Trey Lance in here for two reasons. One, obviously, you're making a huge move from 12 to 3. Giving up your first-round draft pick, uh, not only – well, you're trading first-round slots in 2021, but you're trading your first-round draft pick in 2022 and 23. So you need a guy that can come in there and play really well. Trey Lance, as we know, by far is the biggest project. Right? We started one year at North Dakota State, played one game – in a showcase game this year, in a, a Fugazi showcase game that um, Trey Lance had early in the, in the fall, but North Dakota State played in the spring, they're playing now, but they had one game as a showcase game for Trey Lance for NFL scouts in the fall. So you really had only had one year as a starting quarterback. Now, they went undefeated, they won the national title, and Trey Lance didn't throw an interception. Impressive. But because he's so raw, because he has little experience at the position, he by far is the biggest project. And I think he, he is a guy, no matter where he goes, and San Francisco would be, obviously, probably the best place for a, a first-round draft pick to land. I don't think you can start in 2021. So it means that you're going to take a quarterback at number three in Trey Lance. You're going to sit him on the bench. You're going to have Jimmy G trot out there, knowing that he's a lame-duck quarterback, um, play well, hopefully play well, maybe lead him to the playoffs, maybe try to you know go win a Super Bowl with Jimmy G. If it works out or not, you're going to move on from Jimmy G, and you're going to bring Trey Lance in there. Well, the issue is, one, you got to make sure Jimmy G – is healthy, which he's been anything but that. Out of 48 possible regular season games the last three years, Jimmy G's missed 23. So essentially, he's missed half of the regular season games that he's been able to play in the last three years. Not good, not a production that you want, and not a situation where if you have a quarterback like you're trying to mold and try to have him become the guy in a year or two, well, if Jimmy G goes down, you may be forced to throw Trey Lance in there. That's not an ideal situation. You don't, you don't want to put a guy in there earlier than he should be. And not to mention, you're taking a big risk because Jimmy G plays in 2020. Let's say he, he's healthy this season. So he plays in 2021, then they move on from then it's Trey Lance time. Well, now, if Trey Lance is still raw, still trying to learn the system, still, still trying to kind of get his feet wet, if you will, 2022 is almost a wash because it's almost a developmental year. So now 2021, I won't say it's a wash because Jimmy G again led this team to the Super Bowl, but... I'm going to say, for argument's sake, they can't get past the Rams or, or the Buccaneers to make the playoffs, but don't make the Super Bowl. 2021 with a Super Bowl caliber roster doesn't equate to a Super Bowl. 2022 now, I don't think will equate to a Super Bowl because, again, you're just trying to have Trey Lance get his feet wet. I don't think he's going to have a Patrick Mahomes-like eruption where you start for 50 touchdowns. 
So now you are two years in. This, this roster is getting older. You have a ton of young players. Now you got to worry about paying and try to keep the band together. As we know, keeping a Super Bowl caliber team together is the hardest part in the NFL. It's almost impossible what the Buccaneers are doing. So now you have all of this here kind of invested into Trey Lance to where if he's not the guy in 2022 or maybe if he doesn't play, if he has a Tua-like year where he shows some flashes but not great inconsistent at all, and now you're going to 2023 with some quarterback questions, no first-round draft pick. You're hoping that he can turn it around, and the roster is only getting older. So to me, at least, that is he is far from the biggest guarantee out of the three quarterbacks. I think he's the, he's the one where you have to sit for a year. I mean, who knows? The 49ers are saying they're not going to tra- uh, trade Jimmy G. Maybe they're, they're being true to their word, and whoever they draft is going to sit a year. But to me, Trey Lance, if they end up do drafting him at number three, I think it's the biggest risk and the biggest project just because we don't know. And there's so much development that has to happen that to me, you're putting yourself two or three years away from potentially being able to compete for a Super Bowl when you have that roster ready to compete right now. I look at the Bears. When you have a Super Bowl caliber roster, especially on defense, ready to go, and the quarterback's not ready, I mean, it's getting ugly in Chicago right now. It could get ugly in San Francisco if that's the case with Trey Lance. So to me, if I'm the 49ers, if I'm John Lynch, if I'm Kyle Shanahan, my pick with the number three overall pick, Justin Fields. Love to hear your thoughts. Who, who are you taking? Who should the 49ers, who should the 49ers, easy for me to say, be taken with the number three overall pick? Assuming Trevor Lawrence is going one, I'm assuming Zach Wilson's going two. To me, the answer, slam dunk, Justin Fields. So love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSR, Ryan underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. When we come back here, James Harden believes He's the MVP. He said it on Friday night. We'll play the audio. And I'll ask you this question. Is he right? We'll discuss that next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with your right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Our number two, coming to you live as we always are from the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, but also from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Check out Big Italy Pizzeria, Person in Medford, Joe's Pizzeria in Bayshore, Classic New York Pizza Joint in Bayshore, or online at BigItalyPizza.com. So get to the James Harden conversation. Is he the MVP of the NFL? Uh, of, the, of the NFL. That would be, I mean, you talk about unlikely. James Harden winning the MVP of the NFL. Is James Harden the MVP of the NBA? We'll get to that here in a second. I have some audio that James Harden believes the answer is yes. We'll get your thoughts as well. But in case you want to jump in here, in case you're just tuning in or want to get into the conversation we just had, 49ers trade up for number 12 uh, in the draft to number 3. Who should they draft? I'm assuming Trevor Lawrence is going one. I think it's safe to assume Zach Wilson is going number two. So I feel confident in taking those two options off the board for the 49ers. So it's Justin Fields. It is Trey Lance. It's Mac Jones. My order, I think it 100% should be Justin Fields one for the 49ers. Mac Jones two, Trey Lance three. I think he's by far the biggest risk, the biggest project. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports or Network. Twitter, WWSR and underscore radio. You can tweet us directly. Or comment on the live stream that's going on on either of those two Twitter handles. Comment on the live stream on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. We'll get your thoughts here. 
My guy, KF, better than you, writes on, on Periscope. Still hoping the Jets pass on Wilson, which if, if, it, if they do, by the way, I would have still have Fields 1. I'd have Wilson number 2 in terms of the quarterback rankings there. Let's say if they do draft an offensive lineman or, or trade back and you have Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Mac Jones, and Traylon still on the board. Still go Fields 1. I put Zach Wilson 2, personally, if I'm the 49ers. But he goes, after that, I rank them Fields, Jones, Lance. So he has the same order I do. Justin Fields 1, Mac Jones 2, Trey Lance 3. So if you want to comment and join in on this conversation, we'd love to have you. Again, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSR, underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show as well um, on our Twitter. We'll get back to your comments. We'll definitely get back to this here in about half hour or so. Um, I think it's uh, interesting. I saw some other comments. Um, ESPN and Get Up had the same exact conversation. I'll tell you what. Uh, Dan Orlovsky, very talented NFL, um, former NFL quarterback, now NFL analyst, has to say about the order that the 49ers should go in. So we'll do that in a half hour. And you do want to kind of talk some NBA here and kind of talk about at least the MVP race. I understand there's still a lot of time to go. I mean, we are still a month and a half left in the season. So there's still, obviously, a lot could go on, a lot to still figure out here. So my answer when we're talking about is James Harden the MVP, I'm not writing this in pen. I'm not saying it's absolute. But if the season was to end right now, would he be considered the MVP of the league? Well, James Harden, after his big performance Friday night against the Pistons, which he dropped 44 points, he gave his answer as who the MVP should be. Well, I feel like I belong in it. I feel like I am the MVP. Um, I mean, it's just that simple. Just, and I don't want to talk, I don't want to be, you know, speaking division of myself, but I'm going to just leave it at that. But um, I just try to go out there every single night and give my teammates everything that I, I, I can, you know, bring to the game. So there you have it. He was asked the question, James, do you belong in the MVP conversation? He said, screw that. Forget the conversation. I am the MVP. Took a line from Pete Weber. Who do you think you are? I am. Who do you think the MVP? I'm the MVP. Is he right? Is James Harden right right now? Again, right now, with a, still a month and a half left in the NBA season to go, is he the MVP? My answer is yes. My answer is absolutely yes. And I really don't understand this narrative, this notion, this push for James Harden not to be the MVP. Let's just—I I just want to say this first before we get into the reasons why. I have two reasons why I personally believe he's the MVP. Before we get this, I just want to clear the deck and say this. The MVP award, to me, is about play on the court. It's about when you were playing with your teammates, when you were on the court with your team, are you valuable? Are you playing the best you possibly can? Are you one of the best players in the NBA? It's not about off-the-court antics. It's not even about, to me, how he got out of Houston. A lot of people I've seen on Twitter that have commented that are reporters, that are analysts, that are writers for the NBA, saying we can't give James Harden the MVP because of how he uh, exited Houston. We can't reward that behavior where he gained weight, he acted petulant, he was partying in Vegas, partying in Atlanta during training camp, showed up his teammates, disrespected his teammates, basically loafed it for the first eight games of the season before he eventually was traded to the Nets. We can't reward that type of behavior. I'm sorry, I just don't describe to, uh, subscribe to that. I didn't like the way James Harden left Houston. I am not defending it at all. I can't defend it. It was gross what he had to do. I, I'm not here defending James Harden and his, uh, his antics of forcing his way out of Houston. But with that said, I view the MVP as a strictly on-the-court award. And on the court, James Harden, to me, has been the MVP of the league. 31 games he's played in since coming over from that trade from the Rockets to the Nets. He's averaging 26 points per game, 
8.9 rebounds per game, 11.4 assists per game. Those 11.4 assists per game lead the NBA. In those 31 games, the Nets have gone 24-7. and seven. You could say, oh, you know, they're a super team. Of course, they should do that. Well, let's just say this. 24-7, and seven, but only seven of those games have been with KD, Kyrie, and, K- uh, and Harden, excuse me, all on the floor. And really six of them, because the one game, if you recall, there was some issues with contact tracing with KD to where he didn't start the game because he was in COVID protocol. Then, what, I think midway through the first quarter, he's allowed to come back into the game. And then like halfway in the second half, he was taken out of the game because it ended up, the, the person he had contact, close contact with, ended up testing positive. So really, if we're talking about six, you know, or full games, it's really only been six. So they've played 24, we'll call it 24 and a half games, either just Harden or just Harden and Kyrie. 24 and seven. So the two reasons why I believe James Harden is the MVP right now, number one, his plays aren't it. He has been absolutely phenomenal since coming over from Houston. No one can deny it. I had, I mean, listen to the show. I had my doubts. I still am not sold in terms of finals caliber, but we're looking at the regular season, and this is a regular season award. No player to me has been better since coming over from Houston, and no better, no player has been better in the league than James Harden right now. And he's done something I think, or I thought was, I should say, not able to do from Harden's perspective. And that was changing his game to fit him. As we know, he's a scorer. He's one of the best scorers, maybe, just depending on who you talk to, the best scorer in NBA history, just getting to the line, getting a bucket, scoring. His dribbling is incredible. His step-back three is almost unstoppable no matter where you guard him. His ability to get to the hole, drive, drop outs. It's a, his scoring prowess is second to none. But with that said, his 26 points per game that he's averaging since coming over from Houston that's the lowest points per game average that James Harden has had since 2013-2014. The 8.9 rebounds per game that we noticed when he came, or we referenced, I should say, since he's come over to the Nets, highest of his career. 11.4 assists per game, highest of his career. So it's not the scoring that's allowed the Nets to be so dangerous to continue to play really well at a high level despite KD barely being in the lineup and despite Kyrie in and out with injuries and personal matters. It's the fact that he, he's able to set his teammates up, and it's not just setting up KD and Kyrie, which is easy, right? I mean, me and you, if we're on a court, could set up passes to KD and Kyrie. But it's setting up Joe Harris and Bruce Brown and Nicholas Claxton. It's all these other role guys, that especially when KD and Kyrie are out, when they gutted their bench to make this Harden trade. He's making lower-level, sometimes G-League-type players stars. He's putting them in position to succeed because of his passing ability. And that's why this Nets team is so dangerous right now in the regular season. It's because of Harden's ability to pass the ball, find the open look, not take the shot, not force a three, step back three from 26 feet with a hand in the face. That's a terrible shot early on the shot clock. Or get into a zone where he's just dribble, 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 dribble. And basically it's a one on five. Right? How many times do we see that in Houston where he just takes the ball down and you know immediately when he crosses half court, you see that look in his eye, he's not passing the ball. The other four guys basically could walk on the bench, sit down, take a breather, maybe take a sip of water, maybe get a little massage on their legs, and wait for the shots to either go in or miss and then get back on defense. It's like no one else is out there. But that's been the complete antithesis since he has come to Brooklyn. Looking to pass first, he's hustling, he's grabbing rebounds. To me, his play has absolutely earned it. Because he's setting the team up in a way that is valuable to them. He's putting his play and what works to the side, and instead he's doing what's best for the team, which doesn't that mean value to me? That, that does to me. 
So to me, his play has absolutely earned it to where he's the MVP of the league. That's reason number one. Reason number two, I'll ask you this question. If not James Harden, then who? If you're not going to say Harden deserves it for X, Y, and Z, who is deserving of the award right now? Nikola Jokic is the betting favorite. He has had a tremendous season. I like Nikola Jokic a lot. But here's one stat that I want to throw your way that maybe will have you thinking about differently, I should say, about Nikola Jokic. It's nothing against Jokic's game. This is just the history. So the last 10 NBA MVPs, only one time, and that was when Russell Wilson had that triple-double for a season, if you remember, just one time has an MVP's team not been a top-two team in their conference. Just once. And again, that was historic rush triple-double year in OKC. Um, to me, when you look at where the Nuggets are, 27 and 18, fifth in the Western Conference right now. So, I mean, there's time. There's still time for the, the Nuggets to advance and, and get further in the, in the standings. But I'm just telling you, nine out of the last 10 MVPs, their team was top two in their conference. Right now, the Nuggets are fifth. So that's the biggest case I'd have against right now, Nicole Jokic. LeBron James, I mean, a very popular MVP pick coming into the year. Well, he's out, as we know, four to six weeks with that high ankle sprain. Even before that ankle sprain came down, it's like he was playing MVP-type basketball. Anthony Davis goes out, as we know, with that calf injury. And I thought this was an opportunity, this was the time for LeBron to step up and kind of take a stranglehold of the MVP. Take away from Joel Embiid. Now, when it's the LeBron James show, he's going to put the team on his back. And similar to last year when he ran into form and was really gaining steam in the MVP excuse me, conversation before the league got shut down, I thought that's what we would get from LeBron. Well, to be honest, it wasn't great. They were just 7-5 and five with Anthony Davis out before LeBron got hurt. Averaged 26.5 points per game in that stretch in those 12 games when Anthony Davis was out. So it's not like LeBron all of a sudden just became this beast that we're used to seeing where he took over the game and took over the team in Anthony Davis's absence. So now, obviously, with the injury, he'll be out six weeks. I think he's out of the running right now. But even before that, his play wasn't really warranting of MVP consideration. How about Joel Embiid? Because this, to me, before he got hurt, was the MVP. Embiid was number one um, in the MVP race to me. But obviously, as we know now, he had that scary. And thankfully, it was only a deep bone bruise in his knee. I thought, possibly, honestly, his season was over when you watch the video of him going down. But he's missed eight of the last nine games. And now you read, too, the Sixers, what their priority is for Embiid returning to the court is the playoffs. So they're not looking to rush him back now. They're not looking to throw him into the fire when he does return, where he's going to go from missing, let's say, three or weeks to a month, and now he's going to play 40 minutes a game. It sounds like, from the reports you read, the Sixers are going to take it very, very, very slow. Ease him back in, maybe 20 minutes to start, 22, 25 minutes. So the issue for Embiid is, you're going to miss you know, maybe close to a month of time. Then when you come back, you're going to ease your way in so you're kind of not having that same um, ability to take over a game like you did the first half of the year. So for me, time is running out, and now when you're going to kind of ease your way into where the playoffs are the focus, you're not going to get a chance if you're Joel Embiid to take over a game and drop 40 points to lead the team to victory like he was the first half of the year. So I think that the injury plus the way now – the Sixers, smartly, by the way, not saying that, that they're wrong in doing this. They absolutely should be doing this, taking their time and focusing on the playoffs. But now the rest of the regular season is going to be kind of getting Joel Embiid back to where you hope he's playing MVP-type basketball when the playoffs start. 
So LeBron injury, Embiid injury, Jokic right now fifth in the West. The other latest MVP argument you can make right now, Damian Lillard. Now he has been a stud. Damian Lillard, one of the best players, most fun players to watch in the NBA. Mr. Clutch, anytime it's two minutes or, or less, it's Dame time. And that guy always seems to make the big shot in the big moment. Always seems to find a way to lead his team back to victory. It's so much fun to watch. It's honestly mesmerizing. But with that said, despite the fact that he's second in the NBA right now in 30 points per game averaging, Blazers are sixth. And again, I go back to the same argument with uh, Jokic. Nine out of the last 10 MVPs, the team that the, the player, the MVP was on, their team finished in the top two in their conference. The Blazers right now are sixth. Now again, there's an opportunity here with six weeks left in the year where the Lakers, you think, are going to kind of come back down to earth with LeBron and AD out for a good amount of time. Maybe you can surpass the Clippers, surpass the Nuggets. Maybe the Suns cool off a little bit. There's an opportunity for the Blazers now that they're getting healthier, mind you, by the way, to make a run here and get a top two seed. Maybe even top three seed is good enough. But right now they're sixth. Right now they're sixth. So to me, because of his play, because the other candidates right now not being deserving of the award, Harden, to me, is the MVP. No real discussion. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of pushback on not wanting to reward James Harden for the way he left Houston, and they want to factor that in to the MVP race. So again, to me, it's most viable player, and it's about your on-court production. It was ugly what happened in Houston. I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying he was right in doing so. But since he's come to Brooklyn, his play has shown, to me, he is the most valuable player in the NBA. So still plenty of time. Don't get me wrong. But I thought it was interesting that after the game on Friday night, James Harden told the media, told the world, I am the MVP. It's me. It's me and no one else. Forget just being in the conversation. I think I should be the winner right now. And I think he's right. I agree with Harden. Do you? I'm curious your thoughts. Who's in pole position right now to win the MVP? Do you agree that James Harden, with James Harden, I should say, that he is the MVP? Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well as you can comment there. You can tweet us. You can write on the Facebook live stream, write on the Periscope live stream if you're on Twitter. Is James Harden the MVP? Do you agree with him that the beard is the most valuable player in the league? So get your thoughts, and when we come back, the Elite Eight starts tonight. Starts tonight. We have two teams in the Final Four crowned by the time midnight strikes. Two more teams crowned tomorrow. I'll give you my picks of all four games when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ah, a tune so nice, we will play it twice. Right, how often do we get to hear this tune? So we're going we're gonna to really milk for a few more weeks that I have left of the tournament. So the Elite Eight starts tonight. Four games, two tonight, two tomorrow, and we will know the final four teams by tomorrow night heading into the weekend as the tournament is rounding on down. So who, who do we have Vance? Who is going to the Final Four? I'm going to tell you who I think is going to the Final Four and also say with this caveat, go the opposite of what I'm picking. My picks have been horrible. They've been anything I do, college football, NFL. 
Did not win Hickey's Pickies, as you could tell. Barely, I don't think I even made it over 500. It was a rough year for Hickey's Pickies. Rough year for the bracket. So if you want to listen to these picks, I was just doing the complete opposite, and you'll be in great hands. Absolutely great hands. But we'll, we'll give a stab at it. We'll try to see if we can get some of these picks right. So tonight, we'll start in uh, time order. Oregon State, the 12th seed. The Beavers pick last in the Pac-12, now are one of the eight teams remaining. They take on, take on the Cougars of Houston, the number two seed. Pac-12, as we talked about, as we know, has been absolutely incredible. Such a blast. 12-2. and 12-2, and two, the conferences in the tournament so far. So, how can I pick it against that? I'm not. I'm going with the Beavs. They're building a dam against the, uh, the bucket. Houston's going to have trouble scoring, and the Beavers are going to be marching on to the final four. I'll give Oregon State credit because, honestly, they have made all the winning plays. They really have. Anytime it's been crunch time, anytime a team like Oklahoma State, a team like Little Chicago has made a run, try to get back in the game, they've answered. They've pushed that. They've thwarted the effort to come back in the game, and they have answered. So I love that ability from the Beavers to, as the 12th seed, as we know, kind of the thing, too, with college basketball, it's a lot about momentum, right? It's a very emotional game. It's why, to me, I love college football and college basketball even more than the pros, personally. But college football, especially more than the NFL. But just because when the emotions are so high, when it's 18 to 22-year-old kids, just unthinkable acts happen to where, in the NFL, it's obviously more controlled, where emotions, people are more mild-mannered, we'll say, the players-wise, so they don't get maybe sucked up in the moment. But in college basketball, as we know, there's an underdog having, you know, a great game, they can kind of put the pressure on to where their favorite, despite being more talented, despite being the better team, kind of almost feels the pressure coming over them to where they can't escape it, and they succumb to that and end up losing. But also, as we've seen, lower seeds get off to hot starts, and they kind of fizzle out, then kind of struggle. Because a better team does have confidence, as soon as they kind of grab their own wave of momentum, maybe make a 7-0 run to get back in the game, or kind of get the, you know, the fans back into the game, We've seen a lot of lower seeds kind of falter because, again, the momentum is too much and there's not enough, uh, not a talented enough team to overcome that. But Oregon State, so far, this, this tournament has been the exception to that. They have not only delivered big punches, they have taken teams' best punches and punched back. Again, to keep referencing, you know, Oklahoma State made a big run late in that game. So they're crawling within a possession or two. And Oregon State pushed back and made a run of their own to close out the game late. Loyola Chicago tried to get back in the game, especially early on. The offense of Oregon State really struggled. Couldn't buy a basket. Couldn't hit water from a boat. But they settled down, made the buckets, and then in the second half made the winning plays offensively and defensively and really never gave Loyola a chance, even when they did try to come back, pushed back, and kept going and delivered their own punch, counter punch. So I'm rolling with the Beavs here. I think they continue this magical run. They are playing winning basketball. I'm not going to pick against that. I think Oregon State defeats Houston. Is the first Final Four team in the Pac-12 continues their run, and I'm sure you know who's pumped up. Bill Walton, guy who picked five Pac-12 teams to make the Final Four. I think he is right. You know this one: Oregon State, the Beavers, advancing, taking down Houston, go to the Final Four. Arkansas and Baylor. This is going to be a lot, a lot of fun. I'm taking the Bears though for this reason. Arkansas has been flirting with danger. This entire tournament. And so far, they prevailed, right? They're down 14 in the first half to Colgate. Actually able to race that before halftime. But down 14 to Colgate in the first half. Dying now, uh, I don't even know what I said there. I think it combined down and nine. 
down nine. There we go. To Texas Tech in the first half. They're able to come uh, overcome that and do hang on to beat the Red Raiders. Down by 12 in the second half to Oral Roberts before coming back, erasing that deficit, and advancing to the lead eight. So they've been down and down big in each game so far they've played. But Arkansas, their thing is they come back, they make big runs, big runs in the second half, and they close out games. Thing is, I don't think you can get down 10, 12 points against Baylor and come back. This is not the team you want to fall behind. I think Baylor, despite just the historically bad performance they had from three against Villanova, still able to pull away and win handily. I think the three-point shooting comes back. Their, their defense is all in your face. They're a very aggressive, hyperactive team. I think that's going to give Arkansas some troubles. I think the, the trio of Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, Macy O.T., I think it is going to give the Razorbacks some troubles. They struggled against Villanova. I think they have a bounce-back performance tonight. I think if you fall down, again, double digits to Baylor, you're not coming back. That defense is all in your grill. They're a very good defensive team. I think that's what's going to happen. So I'm having Baylor, the ones that take down Arkansas. I think those are going to be the two teams tonight that advance to the Final Four. Baylor I have winning. Oregon State I have winning. Tomorrow, this is, this is a tough one. UCLA and Michigan. These are two teams that I give a lot of credit to. They've shown their own resilience in, in different ways here. This honestly, this might be one of the toughest games I have to pick. UCLA trying now to become the first team since VCU back in 2011 to play in the first four and then make the final four. But I'll say this, I'll give the Wolverines credit. I picked against them in the round of 32 against LSU. I picked against them in the Sweet 16 against Florida State. I think this is a game where, you know what, Michigan's playing too well for me to pick against them here. They just, they right now are rolling and despite the the, um, the loss of Isaiah Livers, I've kept points that is the reason why I think they'd lose. And they haven't. They've played great, great basketball. Shawnee Brown has come off the bench. Been a huge, huge boon for this team the last two games. Hunter Dickinson is a force down low. This right now team, honestly, not just one player, but really the entire team is picking up for the loss of Isaiah Livers. And right now, with the way they're playing, I can't pick against them. So no shot that I think Michigan would make the Final Four. Pretty sure on this show, was it two weeks ago when the tournament first started? I said Michigan was going to be the first one seed to go down. <sighs> Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. And I think Michigan continues this great run to the Final Four that they have. They will win on Tuesday, take down the Bruins, put a little damper on that Pac 12 run so far. I think Michigan gets to the Final Four. So I think they are the three, the third team, I should say, making the Final Four. And finally, who is going to join them there? Gonzaga. Gonzaga, I think, will beat USC. But I will say this. I think this is going to be the, the most fun, most entertaining, highest scoring game of the Elite Eight. Fitting that it's last of the four games. But right now, it's impossible for me to pick against the Zags. I told you that before. I thought they were tournament proof because they've had zero letdown offensively, defensively. They really even had, you know, there's really barely been a, a pulse or a chance for anything they played so far to get into the game and win. They've dominated from tip to buzzer. And it just helps, again, when you have three All-American players. You have a tremendous quarterback of the offense in Jalen Suggs. When you have Corey Kisper just get buckets left and right, and Drew Timmy just being uh, unstoppable down low. Great offensively, great defensively, very well-coached team with Mark Few at the helm there. They can dag it, gets it done. They slip by USC in a very entertaining back-and-forth game that Gonzags do get it done, and they advance to the Final Four. So Gonzaga, Michigan, Baylor... Three one seeds I have advanced to the final four. 
and joining them, the upstart, improbable, 12-seeded Oregon State Beavers. So who do you got, Vent, to the Final Four? Who are the four teams that will win tonight and tomorrow and be the four teams remaining in college basketball? Love to hear your thoughts. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Add Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. I just want to say this too. Very interesting hire, speaking of college hoops, that Indiana, excuse me, decides to hire former alum, Mike, or I guess not former, he is an alum, hires alum Mike Woodson to be their head coach. Did not see this coming at all. I think this is going to be a job where I really thought Porter Moser uh, of Loyola Chicago was going to take this job. I thought this had his name written all over it. I thought, especially the win over Illinois in round two kind of cemented, that not that we thought this was a fluke by, by short, because, I mean, Loyola Chicago was ranked this year. But I, I really thought cemented that this is a guy for ready for a big-time program that could win and win big. I thought this is the guy Indiana should have gone after. I thought this is the guy Indiana would have gone after. Not sure if they did or didn't. Don't know if Porter Mosier interviewed, turned down the job, wasn't off the job. We don't know. What we do know is Mike Woodson now, the former next head coach, current next assistant, or was the next assistant, um, now is going to Bloomington, back to Bloomington, to be the head coach of Indiana. <sighs> so for shocker, to say the least. Surprising, to say the least. And uh, I'm not really feeling this one, to be completely honest here. Now, the thinking is, at least you see, you know, good players going back to their alma mater to coach. Juwan Howard, ton of success doing so um, at Michigan. But that's a, a blueprint. That's a model that has not been very successful. Really, you know, John Howard's been really the exception, not the rule. So uh, the, the Woodson hire to me is strange for a few reasons. I thought they should have and could have gone after Chris Beard. They should have gone after Porter Mosier. To me, Indiana is a lot like what Texas, what Nebraska, even Auburn to a certain extent, where their expectations are for the fan base, are unrealistic because they are too rooted in history. Now, as you know, Texas, you know, king of football here. Texas always is supposed to be back. They're always supposed to have this tremendously talented program. Same with the Nebraska in football. Same with Auburn in football. The, the fan base every year is national title or bust. As you know, those three schools, Auburn more recently, but still haven't really been on the cusp of a championship at all. But their fans expect it. So what happens the schools try to make flashy hires, try to make splash hires, or go for the name instead of maybe truly find out what equals winning. Right? Like a big name doesn't ever really equate to winning if they're not good at coaching, if they're not good at recruiting, if they're not willing to put the work in. Juwan Howard, as we know, as we've seen, great recruiter, excellent at building a culture in Michigan, and, and has a great scheme that works. Just, just saying the name Mike Woodson who's out of touch, kind of out of tone with college basketball, I think you could have done better. I think you should have done for, should have gone for, if you're Indiana, a lesser name that can build sustainability. Look at, look at Porter Mosier and Loyola. Winning with lesser players. Taking down Illinois with a way less talented roster. Going to the Final Four a few years ago with a way less talented roster. That guy just knows how to win. So now, if you could take that ability of knowing how to win, Take it to a place like Indiana where you could still draw recruits based on the name, still get better players than you would have at Loyola Chicago. You think you, your theory is you could win a lot bigger than he is now. But they go for the splash hire. 
similar to Texas hiring Charlie Strong or Tom Herman, kind of going for the big name instead of trying to focus in on just the the scheme, the recruit, just trying to figure out how to put these guys in positions to succeed. That to me is is what equals success. Indiana has not been successful really at all the last 15 or so years. Their expectations are still to me way too high. And this is a move that don't think is a slam dunk, don't think is a home run. I know it's easy to to or I should say it's very hard to really decipher hires if they're good or not now. But a day later, very shocked, very surprised, and I, I thought personally Indiana could have gone the better route with some more established, well-known coaches in college basketball that could have led to uh, led to success, led back to winning in Bloomington. Again, something that hasn't really happened for the last 15, 20 years. So we'll see how Mike Woodson works out. Best of luck to you, Mike. Hopefully, I mean, I hope it works out for him. I'm not rooting against Mike. It's just a hire that us if I was at Indiana, I'm probably not making. I'm not really sure that the fans think this is a great hire either. That's a fan base that, again, very rabid, very passionate. Expectations are through the roof. So best of luck, Mike Woodson. I'm sure he knows what he's getting into, but at the same time, do you really know what you're getting into? Interesting, interesting, interesting. So when we come back here, I want to circle back to what we talked about in hour number one. The 49ers traded up. Big news of the weekend from the NFL. 49ers traded up from 12 to 3. Who should they be taking with the number three overall pick? I say J- Justin Fields. To me, that's a slam dunk hire again, assuming Trevor Lawrence is going number one, assuming Zach Wilson is going number two. I think they're safe assumptions at this point. Number three, so you have Mac Jones, you have Justin Fields, you have Trey Lance. To me, to me, I think the slam dunk easy, without a doubt, quarterback you draft is Justin Fields. Well, it looks like I'm on an island in that thinking. Few prominent big-time NFL analysts have weighed in this morning, given their thoughts of who the 49ers should draft number three. I tell you who those guys are: Daniel Jeremiah, Dan Orlovsky. Tell you who they are thinking the 49ers are going to be drafting next. It is the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, taking you to the top of the hour on this Monday morning. We appreciate you joining and making us a part of your Monday. If you like this show, hopefully you do. If not, I have good news. Either way, I have good news. If you like the show, don't like the show. There are plenty of options on this Worldwide Sports Network for you to listen to day and night, weekend or weekday. You can get access to all those shows easily. Downloading your app, WWSRN if you have an iPhone, Worldwide Sports Network if you have an Android. Liking us on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. Following us on Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio. Liking us, I believe it's like, I don't think it's follow, I think it's like on YouTube. Or, I'm sorry, subscribe, that's it. All these different terminologies, my apologies. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. That way you get all the clips from every single show. Every show lives there, so let's say you tuned in late. Uh, you're just tuning in now. You want to hear what we said start the show or top of the second hour. All the shows live on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. So you can scroll back there if you subscribe, if you like, if you follow. You can watch the whole show. Our great producer, Speedy Petey, cuts up small sections of it, puts it back out there. So you can get a, a small, condensed version of the show in case you miss it. You want to re-listen back to a segment or two. 
It's all right there for you. WWSRN underscore radio on Twitter. Worldwide Sports and Eric on Facebook. Worldwide Sports and Eric on YouTube. WorldwideSportsRadio.com is our website. And most importantly, WWSRN for iOS. Worldwide Sports and Eric for Android. Where you can download the app and get everything. Articles, shows, clips. Right there on the app. Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's user-friendly, built for you. So make sure you do that today. You won't regret it. So we started, well not started the show, but we talked a lot in the first hour about the 49ers trading up, going from number 12 to number 3 in the NFL draft. And what does that mean? Who is San Francisco going to take? For me, personally, I thought it should be Justin Fields. Easy. With the assumption, of course, with the caveat that Trevor Lawrence going number one to the Jaguars. Zach Wilson going number two to the Jets. One is a lock, right? Trevor Lawrence to the Jaguars, lock it up. Lock it up. Zach Wilson to the Jets is close to a lock. I think it's pretty safe to assume, let's say, 80-20 that it's going to happen. I think at this point, Jets are taking a quarterback in number two for sure. I think if they're going to take a quarterback, I, th- I feel it's going to be right now with the momentum, the way it's going, it's going to be Zach Wilson. So that leaves three quarterbacks left for the 49ers taking number three. Mac Jones, Trey Lance, Justin Fields. Who should they take? For me, slam dunk answer, it's easy. I think it should be Justin Fields. To be on-field production-wise, 78 total touchdowns, nine interceptions in two years at Ohio State. Tremendous leader. Uh, he brings a, a factor that Sean, um, Sean, Kyle Shannon has never had before in mobility. Jimmy G, Matt Ryan, Kirk Cousins. The three quarterbacks that Shannon has coached the most, had the most success with. All three of those guys, pocket passers, we'll, we'll, we'll say nicely. Not very mobile. Statues in the pocket. Not really hurt, hurting you with, the, with their legs. You know what you get. So now, you add the mobility factor, just a, another element, another level that Kyle Shannon gets to work with. That's something he hasn't really had before. Another dynamic to add to an offense that already is very potent and very skilled and very dangerous. So to me, that's why it makes the most sense for the 49ers, they're drafting a quarterback at number three, to go Justin Fields. Then, if it's not Fields, I think Mac Jones would be number two, Trey Lance would be number three, in terms of my power rankings, if you will, of quarterbacks the 49ers take. Well, it looks like I'm in the minority. Well, not just me personally. My guy, uh, KF, better than you on Periscope, writes, and he agrees with my order of rankings. He said, Fields one. Mac Jones 2, Trey Lance 3. So it looks like both of us are in the minority here because now we have some prominent analysts in the NFL and reporters um, weighing in now that, you know, it's Monday and the shows are back on. Dan Orlovsky, very talented. I love what he has to say on ESPN. Very talented NFL analyst, former quarterback, as we know. So he knows the inner workings, very astute, uh, and just a, a great, great NFL mind. He believes... With the 49ers trading up to number three, that it's going to be Mac Jones or Trey Lance. He thinks those are the two quarterbacks it's going to be. Because he says he wants their Matt, or San Francisco wants their Matt Ryan. If you remember, with Kyle Shanahan, when he was in Atlanta, Matt Ryan, 2016 year, he won the MVP. Tremendous offense for the Falcons. Very explosive. Um, as he made to the Super Bowl. So, Dan Olaski thinks... 49ers trading up to get Matt, uh, Matt Ryan. 49ers trading up to either get Mac Jones or Trey Lance. Daniel Jeremiah, very, very talented um, NFL now analyst, 
but also very um, diligent, very involved in the NFL draft process, right? That's where really where his expertise is. He thinks it's Mac Jones. He thinks for sure it's going to be um, Mac Jones trading up now, making a move. He said that on the Athletic NFL podcast that was uh, dropped today. So if Dan Olofsky is saying it's either going to be Mac Jones or Trey Lance, Daniel Jeremiah believes it's going to be um, Mac Jones. And also you have Chris Sims. Why is Now, Chris Sims' opinion is very interesting because he is very, very close with Kyle Shanahan. They were teammates together at the University of Texas. Very, very close. And you had Chris Sims not really reporting. Let me get the exact quote here for you. He wasn't really reporting that the move was for Mac Jones. But he was saying this makes the most sense. In his mind, he believes, in his mind alone, he believes that 49ers made a move to trade up, and it is for Mac Jones. He said, Mac or Kyle Shannon, kind of what we said before about you know having smart quarterbacks. He gets the most. Kyle Shannon gets the most out of quarterbacks, and he wants guys who can make the right reads, guys who can read a defense, know how to execute the game plan, and basically here's what we're doing. Here are some clues what the defense is doing. Go read it, do the rest. And Mac Jones is very talented at that. He believes the move to trade up to number three is for Alabama quarterback Mac Jones. So you have Chris Sims saying Mac Jones. You have Dan Olofsky saying either Mac Jones or Trey Lance. You have Daniel Jeremiah saying Mac Jones. Sorry, my apologies. I had a sneeze there, and it's gone. Okay. Close call. Very close call. So you have three plugged-in, smart, in-tune NFL analysts, reporters, saying either Trey Lance or Mac Jones. So I guess I'm on an island here thinking it should be Justin Fields. And this is what I don't get. And this is – I kind of hate the draft process, like, at this time of the year, to be completely honest. I love the rumors. It's always fun to speculate. But part of the reason why I kind of hate this time of the year is because there's so much downtime between – well, it used to be the combine, but now we're not even having a scouting combine this year. So much downtime between the combine in late February and the draft in in late April. So we have, like, two months or so of speculation – and we need things to talk about, so we're just going to kind of say things that either, you know, prop a quarterback up, maybe that's not that good, or tear a quarterback down that that's pretty good, and we're really nitpicking because we have so much time. So what else are we going to do? Let's nitpick these guys. I don't, I don't understand personally why all of a sudden Justin Fields is kind of getting thrown to the side here. He is now viewed as a fifth quarterback in this draft out of five. Remember, if <laughs> now this is also just me being very high in fields. But back when the season was going on in college football, there was a point where I truly thought Justin Fields would give Trevor Lawrence a run for his money for the number one overall pick. Now, a few bad games. Trevor Lawrence, as we know, going to the Jags. It's not going to happen. But I still am very high in Justin Fields, and I just don't understand, not even the slander, because that's not really what's happening here, but I, I just, the, the pushing to the side, the ignoring, and kind of focusing on other guys, I just personally don't get it. Like, like what else does this guy have to do? He was talking about tremendous leadership, very mobile, and his production speaks for itself. Like, th- this is the thing, too. Trey Lance, one year in North Dakota State, plus one start in 2020. Mac Jones, one year at Alabama. Zach Wilson, three-year start at BYU. But for the most part, you look at his touchdown reception ratio, 2018 and 2019 compared to 2020. I mean, Zach Wilson was a guy fighting for his job just to keep the starting quarterback position heading to this year, and obviously he exploded 33 touchdowns, three interceptions. He, he played a great year in 2020. I'm not taking anything away from Zach Wilson. 
But Zach Wilson, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, all did it for one year. Mitch Trubisky in North Carolina played for one year. I'm not saying any of those guys are going to be like Mitch, but my point is, especially, especially in a COVID year for Mac Jones and Zach Wilson, it's tough for me to latch on and truly think that they are maybe the second or third best quarterback in this draft to win and just ignore a guy, Justin Fields, who to me has done everything right. He did it in 2019. He rebounded in 2020, played his best game of his career against a team that crushed his heart in 2019, broke his heart, came back against the best defense and best defensive coordinator in all of college football and Brent Venables at Clemson. Made him look silly, dropping six touchdown passes in the college football playoff semifinal with hurt ribs. I understand it's one game. I'm not just saying he should be the number uh, or the second or third quarterback taken because of that one game. When you just look at his ability to, like, when we look at those hidden traits, I think personally, if he does get passed up, he goes somewhere else. Let's say Zach Wilson goes before Trey Field, uh, Justin Fields. Let's say Mac Jones goes, and maybe even Trey Lance. Maybe Justin Fields is the fifth quarterback take. I think we'll be looking back in two or three years, pointing to that game, we'll say, wow, you know what? That Clemson game, man, that, that showed who Justin Fields is, and now we're seeing in the NFL, we missed. We miss with our evaluation. This is a guy who's done it consistently now for two years. Checks all the boxes. It is a mobile quarterback, unlike Mac Jones. Has done it on the biggest stage, unlike Trey Lance. Like, someone has to explain to me why. Why? And again, this is all speculation because who knows? Maybe the Jets take Trey Lance, uh, Justin Fields. keep saying, I'm sorry. Maybe the Jets take Justin Fields number two overall. Maybe I'm just bloviating here and getting upset for no reason. But it's crazy just as this process goes on. The more and more draft analysts, the more and more mock drafts are projected, the lower and lower Justin Fields falls, and I don't get it. I'm no draft expert. I'm not a draft analyst. I'm a college football fan. That's where, to me, at least I use my knowledge the, the best here. So I'm not telling you, I, I don't know personally, you know, what traits, you know, whatever, if holding on to the ball too long or, or whatever. There are certain traits that project well to the NFL that I'm looking more from a playing perspective, not measurables. I'm not looking at pro days. I'm not looking at arm strength and height and hand size, spin rate of the football. Like, I, I'm, a lot of my judgment is based on watching the games. And watching the games, to me, Justin Fields is more consistent and better than Zach Wilson. He has done it for a longer period of time than Mac Jones with lesser group, uh, lesser players around him and has just more consistent, just a better overall player than Trey Lance. But each week it feels like it gets lower and lower and lower, and now we have NFL analysts now talking about the 49ers going for Mac Jones, going for Trey Lance. There's not even – I don't even think I've seen Justin Fields' name mentioned once, by the way, for, for the 49ers number three. I don't get it. I don't get it. And he's not paying me, by the way, either. I know I've been kind of propping him up for a while. Justin, if you're listening, you want to send me a check. I'm not going to, you know, say no. I'll appreciate that. But this is me just trying to – Prop up a guy that I feel like is getting the short end of the stick for a reason I'm not really sure of, to be serious, or to be honest. I don't get it. Maybe we'll figure it out between now and then. Maybe he'll be a bust and I'm just missing all the signs right now or putting too much stock into how he played against Northwestern or Clemson and not you know missing kind of all uh, on the other factors that maybe should signal that he's not going to be a good NFL quarterback. But I think he's going to be very successful. I think a lot of teams, if, if San Francisco passes on him, if the Falcons pass on him, 
if the Panthers pass on him. I think a lot of teams will be kicking themselves. That's for sure. That is for sure. So I'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on this gorgeous Monday morning. We appreciate you starting your week with us. Hopefully you had a very enjoyable, fun, relaxing weekend. Great news. Because, again, this is the only thing about the tournament schedule changing that is a positive. Not a big fan of it personally. I still like the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday layout. But I will say this. It makes Monday and Tuesday a lot easier to digest with elite games, elite eight games on tonight. So I will say this. The week has gone faster the last two or three weeks because you have basketball on. Last week we had the, uh, the last day um, of the round of 32. Tonight and tomorrow you get the two elite eight games or four elite eight games to each night. It's a very exciting time to be a college sports fan. Very exciting time for a sports fan. Best of luck to your bracket if you're still alive. Hopefully that continues and uh, you have a, a solid next two days. So enjoy the games tonight. Appreciate you listening starting your week with us. Have a safe, enjoyable, sane week. Stay safe. Stay sane as always. We'll talk to you on Thursday morning right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio.